Okay, we are looking at a new series, and we're looking through some of the pastoral epistles, and we're looking at under the title, Organic. What are some of the uh, organic qualities that we need in the church in order to thrive? What are some of those things, just like a plant needs good soil and sunlight and water, what are the essential things that we need in the church in order to thrive? And so we're going to be looking at that today. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul generally is attributed to have written 14 of them. That's a lot. Paul was a busy guy. I mean, he was traveling, it seemed, all the time. He was in shipwrecks a lot. He was in jail a lot. (laughs) And uh, he was planting churches and mentoring people. And he was writing a lot of Scripture. I don't think he realized that he was writing Scripture at the time. I think he just thought he was writing letters, important letters, that he was sending to the churches. But the churches, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognized these are important letters that we want to preserve. Some of these letters were written, of course, to specific churches, the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus. Some of the letters were meant to be circulated, a sort of general circulation. They were expensive to make, and so it was worth passing them on to a church and then another church as they went through. And then some of the letters were written to individuals. Does anybody remember getting like an actual letter in the mail? Who's received it recently? Somebody, oh, that's C, but from Bolivia maybe. Uh, So it's good to see you here today. Um, So we have lost somewhat the art of letter writing, but we remember what it was like, right? Christine, when she was in Zimbabwe, just before we were engaged, she wrote a pile of letters. I still have them. We discovered them the other day. I'm not going to read them in public right now because they're personal. And that's the nature of some of the letters that Paul wrote as well. They were very personal letters. So we're going to learn from this letter that he wrote to Timothy in 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then also the letter he wrote to Titus. But we have a problem. The problem is we only get to listen into one side of the conversation because we don't see the response that Timothy and Titus gave to Paul. And I think they would have given a response. They wouldn't have left Paul on read. They wouldn't have left Paul hanging. They would have given Paul some kind of response, but we don't have that. So we're left with a bit of a difficulty in listening into one side of the conversation. Have you ever been in a, a store or maybe on transit and you see some guy and it looks like he's just talking to himself? This is more common now, so it's maybe not as startling as when it first started to happen. And you see this guy and he's just talking away as if there's someone right in front of him. And you begin to wonder, you give him his space, you know, people fan out, don't sit next to him or anything like that. And then you realize he's got some kind of Bluetooth device. And he's actually talking on the phone, but he's not being quiet about it. The guy is just talking out loud. And you know you're not supposed to listen in on the conversation, but you can't help it. Have you ever done that? And you start to wonder, hmm, I wonder who's on the other side of that phone chat, right? And you start to make up scenarios. Maybe you don't. Maybe I do just to pass the time. And you can tell a lot from the nature of the conversation by just listening to one side. The words he uses, his tone, his expression, whether he's laughing or crying or yelling, but you can begin to decipher what's happening in the conversation. That's kind of what we need to do when we come to the letters that Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus. Because we only get one side of the conversation, we need to listen a little more carefully and we need to understand some of the background. Well, what was the background? 
Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy was a unique, younger man that Paul mentored. Paul did some amazing things, but one of the great things that he did is he mentored the next generation. Do we realize that in Paul? For all the stuff he did, he made sure that the church had a new generation of leaders that he mentored. I want you to think for a moment. Who is coming behind you? If you're in a position of leadership perhaps in this church or perhaps even in your family, who are you encouraging that is younger than you to take over the reins in the church? Who are you pouring your life into? That's what Paul does with Timothy and Titus. That's why we're here today because Paul did it with Timothy and Titus and they did it with someone else and on down the line for 2,000 years and here we are because someone poured into our lives. So we need to turn around and say, who's coming behind? Will they find us faithful? And will we leave a legacy, a deposit in their lives as well? That's what Paul does. Timothy would have been considered at the time of mixed race. He was actually had a, a Jewish uh, a mother and grandmother who are well known in the community of, to be people of faith. But he also had a Greek dad which is an interesting part of Timothy's upbringing and plays into some of what he's able to do in like a Greek city like Ephesus. Paul met Timothy during the second missionary journey, and then he brought Timothy under his wing, mentored him, and took him out with Silas to a number of different missionary endeavors. Now he's sending Timothy to the very important city of Ephesus. This is very close to Paul's heart. He spent several years developing the church in Ephesus. Now, when we think of the church in Ephesus, don't think of something like this. It didn't look anything like this. We realize that, right? Um, the church weren't able to meet in public. They didn't own land. They didn't have buildings. These would have been clusters of household churches, gatherings all throughout Ephesus. But because Ephesus was so important, Paul wanted to send his brightest and best to Ephesus to make sure things were on track. Because it seems like a number of things had snuck in to put the church off track with the gospel. And so Timothy is going to set things right. Can you imagine that? Imagine being tasked with that. You're going to go now to Vancouver. You haven't spent a lot of time there, but you are going to be responsible for getting all the churches in Vancouver back on track. They're way off track, by the way. So you need a lot of work to do. So can you imagine that? It might not be the same parallel, but that's such a burden that he trusts to Timothy. That's how highly regarded Timothy was in Paul's eyes. Well, Paul's great passion was the gospel. Do you get that? Reading through Paul, of all the topics he, he picks up, his great passion is the gospel. He is consumed and preoccupied with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And for Paul, it changes everything. It's not just fire insurance for when he dies, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus for Paul, it impacts what we do with the work of our hands. It impacts our relationships with one another. It impacts our households, our marriages, our families. It impacts every aspect of our life together. And Paul is passionate about the gospel. And so his concern is that sometimes... The church gives the gospel a bad reputation. That's kind of an indictment of the church, isn't it? 
that sometimes this gathering of the followers of Jesus and what we do and don't do together sometimes gives the gospel a bad reputation, and Paul is deeply concerned about this. There are at least three areas that Paul brings up in these letters that he's deeply concerned about, that he sends Timothy and Titus to correct, and I think they relate to us as well. One of the things that gave the church a bad reputation were false teachers. Teachers specifically that were coming in with uh, teachings that were, had to do with legalism. So in other words, trying to make people conform to the old Jewish law. So these are teachers that moved away from grace and much more toward the law and legalism. And Paul said, that's a danger. That's going to be a bad reputation for the gospel of grace in that community. But also, Paul was concerned, and this really comes up in Titus, about church members behaving badly, just behaving badly with one another. It could have been infighting and disunity. That gives a bad reputation to the gospel. But also behaving badly in our workplaces, behaving badly in society at large, behaving as if the gospel never happened, behaving as if we're just the same uh, as, as everyone else in terms of our standards and values in the world. And Paul says that gives the gospel a bad reputation. But also, this is something that Paul is deeply concerned about, is the ne neglect of the vulnerable. When the church forgets justice, it gives a bad reputation to the gospel. Because then what does it matter? What does it matter that Jesus came and died and rose again if we're not taking care of those who are most vulnerable? So these are at least three things that are on Paul's heart. Come out in the letter as we read through it and that he's concerned about. I think we have some of the same issues today, don't you? I think sometimes we do uh, have false teachings and a tendency toward legalism. Sometimes we make it really difficult for people to follow Jesus, and we shouldn't. I think sometimes uh, we, are, we behave badly with one another and in society around us. And I really do think sometimes we get so preoccupied with our own safety and our own comfort that we forget justice. And we forget that there are people that are in need of God's grace shown through our lives. And so these are things that can give a bad reputation to the gospel. Well, there's an Angus Reid poll that came out. Has anybody seen it? It popped up on my Facebook uh, feed. Angus Reid does polls, of, uh, especially of, of uh, religion in Canada every once in a while. They just released one a couple of weeks ago. And it's not a pretty sight. I have to say that. I'm not surprised. And I sometimes hold these polls with, you know, a grain of salt. Um, especially, there's almost 40 million people in Canada, right? And they polled less than 3,000. And they didn't ask me. So, I mean, how valid is this poll? But it's interesting. I mean, it shows very definitely that religious affiliation is on the decline in Canada. That's not a surprise. <laughs> That's been happening for a long time. But here's the thing that got my attention. More than ever in Canada, more than ever in Canada, Canadians view religion as harmful to society. So not just benign, not just kind of, well, do it if you want to, but actually harmful to society. I found that interesting. And it's a big jump compared to the last poll that was done. There are two groups that are, that are singled out within this Angus Reid poll. One is uh, uh, 
religious affiliation with Islam, so Muslims, and the other is evangelical Christians, which is very interesting to me because we're lumped in with that generalization of evangelical Christians. And it made me, at first, get kind of angry. How dare you? We do so much good in this society. We do so much good all around us. We're trying to do good all the time. Look at our lunch program. Look at all that we do with the youth. Look at the different things we're doing. They have no idea who we are. And I kind of got my back up when I first read that. Kind of a little bit ticked off at how dare they. But then I began to think uh, a little bit more. And it caused me to reflect on some of the ways that we might, as evangelical Christians, be creating a sense of harm in society and bringing a bad reputation to the gospel. And I think there's a number of factors that play into that. I think partly it's because that word evangelical has become associated with a certain political movement in the United States. And that hasn't done us any good. <laughs> and so that's difficult. And that kind of clouds the reality of what we're trying to do. But I think also our identification, association with the residential school system in Canada. I think all of that has come up and has kind of clouded us. And before we say, oh, that was a Catholic issue or that was a government issue, we should know that even as a Baptist church, we ran a residential school in Whitehorse. And so we're tied in. And even if it's not by running, it's by silence on some of those issues that we should have spoke up on. And so we're tainted by that, and maybe rightly so. And also the way that we handle those that identify with the LGBTQ community, our attitudes, our approaches, what we say and what we advertise, it's not welcome. And come to us. Come to God's grace. It's stay out because we don't understand you. And so there are difficulties here that we have to wrestle with. And I think it's good for us to hear a poll like this, to react a little bit, and then to say, wait a minute. Are there ways, just like the church in Ephesus, where we might, by our actions, by our attitudes, be giving a bad reputation to the gospel? And what can we do to get back on track. That's why Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus, for the sake of the gospel. That's why we need to come again and again to God's word in repentance for the sake of the gospel. And that's what we want to do in the series. So from these instructions to Timothy, we can learn certain priorities for the church. Get back to our roots. What is the organic soil that we need to be in in order to thrive? What are those key elements that create an environment in which the gospel can have a good reputation through this congregation here at Bonavista Baptist Church and also in Musaman, if you're joining in today. Well, key priority number one is prayer. This isn't going to be a revolutionary sermon series. This is going to be back to basics. And Paul draws us back to basics by saying this, I urge then, first of all, of extreme priority, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Paul says to Timothy, the first thing to do to get the church back on track, get them praying. Get them praying. And not just praying for their friends and family. That's good. We have burdens for our friends. We have burdens for our families. But we also have people that we don't particularly like. And Paul says, make sure, Timothy, that the church is praying for those people too. We have people that we really don't understand. We have people that we'd really rather not identify with. Paul says, no, no, all people. 
pray for all people. But then he doubles down, and this is where it gets really difficult. This is going to be the difficult part of the sermon, if there's nothing else difficult before this. This is the difficult part. Difficult part, he says, make sure the church is specifically praying for the Prime Minister of Canada. Right? Make sure that you're praying for people in authority over you. You might not like them. In this case, they were told to pray for Caesar. Caesar was not a friend of the church. They didn't vote him in. They didn't make him king. They had no choice in the matter. And in fact, some Caesars, some Roman rulers, were terrible to the church. And still, they were to pray for those in authority. Here was the issue. That some people in Roman society thought that the Christians were not very patriotic because they wouldn't worship Caesar. The Christians would say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And because of that, a lot of them got into trouble. And so Paul says, make sure that people understand that even though we don't worship Caesar, we still pray for Caesar. Pray for those in authority over you. This is what uh, William Barclay says. This was a cardinal principle of communal Christian prayer. Emperors might be persecutors, and those in authority might be determined to stamp out Christianity, but the Christian church never, even in the times of bitter persecution, ceased to pray for them. The church always prayed for those in authority, even if those in authority were against the church. That's the challenge that we have. If we want to get on track with having a good reputation for the gospel through us, here's the first priority. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our leaders. Paul very helpfully gives Timothy four kinds of prayers to pray for Caesar, and these are four kinds of prayers that we can pray for our dear prime minister today. You can do this when you go home or any other person in authority. First of all, supplications. We need to pray with supplications. If that word's too big to spell for your notes, you can spell entreaties. That's not any easier, actually, is it? But that's the idea. That's the word. The Greek word means to entreat God. It's, it has that sense of urgency. It's almost a desperate kind of prayer. Does anybody feel that they want to desperately pray for people in authority today? Yes, we should be. All the time, have this sense of desperate prayer urgent prayer when we're praying for those in authority. When we see Paul urging Timothy and the congregation of Ephesus to offer up entreaties, he's urging them to make sure that their prayers are laced with an urgency and a resolve. Resolve today to pray for those in authority over us with urgency, with a sense of almost desperation. That's the first kind of prayer he says to lift up. Here's the second. It's listed just as prayers, which sounds very generic. It's actually the most common Greek word used in the New Testament for praying in public. Just prayers. Prayers need to be lifted up. Sometimes this word is associated with a specific place or a specific posture, but the idea is have a habit of prayer, and especially praying in the public arena for your leaders. So not only have an urgency to your prayers, but have a good habit. Do it all the time. Be consistent in praying for your leaders, especially when you gather in public. 
The third word he uses is petitions. Petitions is like intercessions. It's praying specifically on behalf of another person. That's when we set aside our own needs, we set aside our own uh, preconceptions, and we pray for another person. A number of years ago when I was working with Canadian Baptist Ministries, um, I was sent to represent the Canadian Food Grains Bank. Uh, the people in Moosamin know all about the Canadian Food Grains Bank. And I was sent there with a whole delegation. We were able to meet with 52 of our members of Parliament, our, our small team was, over the course of a number of days. And so in Ottawa, we actually went into their offices and we presented the work of Canadian Baptist Ministries and the Canadian Food Grains Bank. What happens with, with the Canadian Food Grains Bank is that we internationally, when we're responding in relief and in crisis work, the government of Canada will match those grants four to one. And so it's a significant boost to what we're able to do in crisis situations, whether it's Syria or whether it's Sudan or whether it's now Ukraine. And so we were going around to these members of parliament to make sure that that kind of relationship continued. And it was a great honor to be able to represent uh, Canadian Baptist Ministries and the Food Grain Grains Bank to our members of parliament. But after we would meet with a member of parliament, uh, sometimes, if the Bible's right, we would say, can we pray for you? And sometimes they were shocked. Sometimes they were totally okay with it because they came from a faith background. And they said, sure, fine, pray for me. But then we'd take it one step further and we'd say, how can we pray for you? That shocked them. They're like, what, I have to get specific again to do a general blessing? And so they'd think for a moment. And I would say nine times out of ten, this is what they said. Please pray for my family. Pray for my family. And just in those moments, it really humanized our members of parliament to me. It made me realize that these men and women are serving actually sometimes at great cost, at separation of their families, at a whole bunch of conflict, at a whole bunch of things that they really didn't sign up for, of the nastiness that sometimes in our society. And their families get wrapped up as a target in that as well. And they said, pray for our families. We need to be specific when we're praying for those in authority over us. And this is what Paul is saying through Timothy. If petitions with intercessions, praying specifically on behalf of someone else and setting our own needs aside. So supplications, pray with urgency. These general prayers, pray consistently. These petitions, pray specifically. And then the hardest of all, perhaps, pray with thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving. Eucharisto is the word that Paul uses here. And it's a special word that's generally used in worshiping God. And here's the secret. Because sometimes we don't feel very thankful for those in authority over us. Sometimes we don't feel very thankful for the decisions that they make. But we can always return our thanks to God, who is the ultimate authority over all things. We can always return thanks to God, knowing with confidence that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to this purpose. We can always return thanks to God, knowing that he is moving history in a particular direction and will bring his conclusion at the end. And so we can still pray prayers of thanksgiving. Theophilus of Antioch. There's a name you haven't heard for a while or ever, perhaps. But this guy, 
who wrote a long time ago, he said this, The honor that I give the emperor is all the greater because I will not worship him, but I will pray for him. I will worship no one but the true and real God, for I know that the emperor was appointed by him. This is tough theology that we find in the New Testament about how authorities are established. And because ultimately, God is the only one that has supreme authority, we return our prayers to him and we give thanks to him, even in adverse circumstances as we come up against our leaders. Well, it's interesting because this uh, advice through Timothy to the church in Ephesus must have worked. Because by AD 311, the emperor, Galerius, he actually publicly requested that Christians pray for him. It must have had an impact. It must have been a good reputation for the gospel when the emperor realized, hey, these Christians aren't um, non-patriotic, unpatriotic. They're actually praying for me. Please pray more. That's what he requested. Well, why should we? Why should we pray for those in authority over us, especially when we don't agree with their decisions or the the, uh, direction they're taking the country? Well, because it pleases God. That should be enough for us. That's end of sermon right there, right? It pleases God. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Do this. Pray for those in authority because it pleases God. But also he says, so that we can live in peace so that we can live a life that is tranquil and undisturbed. It's like Paul is saying to Timothy, make sure that you pray that peace is in the land so the government leaves us alone. (laughs) Some people are saying, yes, I can pray that prayer. But that's kind of what Paul is saying. He's, He's saying, don't stir up trouble for the church. Make sure that you continue to kind of fly under the radar so that you can live a life of godliness and that there can be peace in the land. So you continue to spread the good news of the gospel. Peace is good for the gospel. That was Paul's um, idea. But there's a third reason, and this is probably the most important. Pray for our leaders for this primary reason, so that they might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth in Jesus. That's, That's Paul's heart. Paul's heart for the gospel, Paul's heart for Caesar, Paul's heart for every leader is that they might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth of Jesus and be influenced by his truth. Now we have to recognize as we bring a conclusion to this part of the sermon, or this, actually it's not part one, this is the end of the sermon, no worries. Um, But as we bring a conclusion to this, we have to recognize that, that Paul and Timothy were in a very different style of government than we are in. They did not have a chance to vote. They had no voice in the political process. And they were praying, praying for those in authority was really their only recourse. That's all they could do. We have a different scenario, and so we do behave differently. We do have an opportunity to engage in the political process. We must hold our leaders to account. That's part of the the privilege of the society in which we live. We should take the opportunity to vote and have an informed vote. But all of this should still be done in the context of praying for those who are in authority over us. All of it, our political engagement, even holding people to account, even our complaints on Facebook if we post them there, should all be done in the context of praying for those 
in authority over us. Because if they're not, then it's not a Christian response to what's happening around us. So in this way, as we pray for those in authority over us, perhaps we can restore that good reputation of the gospel and even have our leaders once again say, can you pray for us? I'm going to end with a prayer, and it's a prayer from uh, Clement, who was one of the bishops in Rome, and it's from his first letter to the church in Corinth, written about A.D. 90. And just to give you context, this is right after a very severe time of persecution of the church, an ugly, awful time where Christians were burned alive. And after that time, this is how he prays for the emperor. So would you pray with me as I read this ancient prayer? You, Lord and Master, have given our rulers and governors the power of sovereignty through your excellent and unspeakable might. Grant unto them, therefore, O Lord, health and peace, harmony, stability, that they may administer the government which you have given them without failure. Lord, direct their counsel according to that which is good and well-pleasing in your sight, that administering the power which you have given them in peace and gentleness with godliness, they may obtain your favor. O Lord, who alone are able to do these things and things far more exceeding good than these for us, we praise you through the high priest and guardian of our souls, Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and the majesty both now and for all generations, forever and ever. Amen.